Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Joja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and also joining us. also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we're joined by Dr. Steve Flanagan, who's an adjunct senior fellow at the RAND Corporation and a much-esteemed colleague of mine at the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University, and who's, for those of you who are not familiar with him, has held several senior positions in the U.S. government, most recently Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Defense and Strategy at the NSC. Steve, it's great to have you with us. Good morning. Great to join you. So let's start. We want to talk about everything under the sun on the eastern flank and eastern front with you. But let's start with the Black Sea and specifically with, of course, the war. 2024, Ukraine, many would argue, is now in trouble. I think it was yesterday that the president of the Czech Republic, Petro Pavel, said that he doesn't expect Ukraine to be able to reclaim any significant territory in 2024. And of course, we have a complicated problem here in Washington, D.C. politically. But let's focus a little bit on the war. You've watched it closely over the last two years. What are you expecting from the front lines in 2024? Well, I think it is true, as, as Chris's general says, only himself said in his very controversial November 1st Economist article, the Ukrainian chief of defense, that the war was at a stalemate without, but of course, he was trying to make the case that the stalemate would continue unless the West had provided some of the critical equipment that Ukraine was still needing to break through some of the minefields to strike deeper behind Russian front lines and to be able to have some air cover. So hence the provision of combat aircraft that is at least in train provision of uh, through the F-16 coalition that the training is proceeding, as you know, in Romania for the pilots. And now it's a question of sequencing the availability of the aircraft and the pilots uh, to then also provide Ukraine with that capability. But that said, none of those capabilities that even the general solution was saying were essential to be able to break the gridlock would necessarily be completely decisive. And I think that most military analysts that, you know, some of my colleagues at RAND and others uh, at AEI and, and the Institute of Study of the War that follow it closely all, uh, you know, I think note that these lines are going to be very difficult. Ukraine has had great difficulty in moving and trying to cut the supply lines from Crimea in, in Zaporizhia and in, in other areas in the south. So moving forward on that, but still holding the line. And of course, I think in the strategic, you know, it's always useful to remember that Ukraine has been able to recover about half of the territory that Russia occupied after February 24th of 2022 and has imposed enormous losses on, on Russian forces, both their regular army and the other mercenary forces in the Wagner group that were thrown at them. But what I think we're seeing, though, is the war taking a new trend with the Ukrainians doing both through long-range drone systems and special operations uh, to try to bring the war home to Russia a bit more. And of course, they've been fairly successful in targeting uh, the Black Sea Fleet headquarters and targeting uh, elements of the Black Sea itself, and also some counter-infrastructure attacks uh, in Russia, including just dramatically uh, last week, the SBU claiming that they were behind the uh, attack against a, a refinery up in the Baltic Sea area of Russia. So so I think that Ukraine uh, and Russia will continue to, because on the other side, Russia is trying to break the morale of the, of the Ukrainian people and target uh, both 
critical infrastructure and forces and posing heavy costs on Ukrainian military operations as they try to break through some of these heavily fortified positions. So, so yes, I think it's going to be uh, very difficult to see major military advances uh, this year. Nonetheless, you, we might see some dramatic shifts, especially if the Ukrainians are able to uh, undertake some even more dramatic disruption of Russia's sustainment capabilities. For example, attacks against the Kursk Strait Bridge or other other attacks on, on Russian military headquarters. I may just jump in. It strikes me that the talk of a stalemate really abstracts away from a lot of sort of dynamic developments that we've seen all over the battlefield, but but particularly in the Black Sea region. And I know that General Zaluzhny's piece was very nuanced, but, but the way the situation in Ukraine is presented in the United States and has sort of entered popular discourse makes it seem as if, you know, the front lines were not moving, nothing's happening, just people are dying on both sides, and, you know, what's the point of that? But, I mean, the reality is that the Ukrainians have made, you know, major advances, basically destroying big chunk of, of, of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, re-establishing the trade routes out of Ukraine for the grains after Russia's withdrawal from the grain deal. I wonder what your expectation is for this year for the Black Sea region in particular? And what are the prospects of Ukrainians being able to really pull off something, you know, bigger than we what we've seen thus far? Specifically, you know, making Crimea situation unsustainable for the Russians. Strikes me that in a sort of world of asymmetric warfare, like this might not be completely out of the question. Delacour, your point is very well taken. And I think absolutely that there are these opportunities for rather dramatic shifts also in terms of the, the impact on Russia's war effort. The fact that the Russian Black Sea Fleet has been pushed back, even now looking to you know expand a base in Georgia as a way to protect the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, the fact that uh, the Ukrainians have been successful in you know both the, some of the dramatic attacks against some of the major capital ships, but also against military headquarters and, and other using asymmetric means as you note, and, and, you know, relatively inexpensive drone technology and other things, that, and, and things that the Ukrainians themselves have innovated, even aside from what's been provided to them by other uh, other countries. In fact, I heard Assistant Secretary of State Jim O'Brien speak yesterday, and he was talking about uh, how the fact that grain shipments have been rather dramatically restored, not to, not to pre-war levels, but a significant uh, jump in that, thanks to the fact that the Russians have been less able to threaten some of the grain shipments coming out of Ukraine, although that's still possible. And and then earlier this month, as another step to sort of show resolve at the Romanian initiative, I believe, but working with Turkey and Bulgaria, established a task force to combat sea mines that has begun operations. And each country will assign three vessels to that, countermine vessels to that effort to try to reduce the sea mine threat that will hopefully encourage further shipping to continue and feel that they can transit those corridors uh, with less risk because that loose mine issue is becoming uh, an even uh, greater threat than direct Russian attacks. A very, very short question on this. This particular point but i was i was thinking about this for for a while so one story that resonated in the news recently was turkey's decision not to allow the passage of british mine hunters that the brits were donating to to the ukrainians how big of a problem is turkey like with the montreal convention and and, and closing the trades and would 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 the war look any different if Turkey were more cooperative? Was this the first instance in which they sort of precluded potentially significant aid 
to Ukraine from, from being delivered? Are there other routes through which, you know, ships can be delivered? I mean, I'm asking, maybe this is a completely sort of dumb question, but, but I wonder if perhaps our listeners might be asking the same question themselves. No, well, Turkey's claim that, of course, that they're implementing the uh, Montreux Convention strictly and fairly is, is a bit strained. One could say, if you took it back to the beginning of the war, just before the war, I mean, the provision of Montreux that Turkey invoked was that saying that even, I believe it's Article 19 that says, even though they are not a belligerent, if they felt that there was a, a threat of a risk of wider war, that belligerent states could not transit, or any naval vessels could transit the straits. And they did impose that, but it was after the fact that the Russians had moved a fair number of amphibious vessels, I think a total of six, or maybe it was nine, in, in three packages through the straits. But this was in January and early February of 2022. So the Turks didn't close the straits then, which would have been a much more of a confrontation with the Russians, because the Russians can claim that they were the literal state, they had uh, other rights, but, but these were vessels that were not home ported on the Black Sea. So there was some question as to whether or not that was a legitimate or, or fair implementation that Turks could have. So I, the short answer is Turkey does remain a problem in the way in which it's conducted itself. It did do the right thing, you could say, in terms of preventing further Russian vessels from transiting, and, and but also it impacted the straits. But it did, of course, prevent NATO from providing additional reinforcements uh, to some of the NATO member states that are literal in the area. Turkey has had the assessment for a number of years, going back even before the war, that that it could somehow manage the Black Sea with the Russians and, uh, and perhaps with the you know, limited support from its two NATO allies in the region. But the fact is that the military balance has shifted in an adverse way against the Turks. Well, the Turks are engaged in a fairly significant development of their own naval capabilities and, of course, also anxious to modernize their air forces. The Russians have been also modernizing the Black Sea fleet. It's smaller, but still very capable, as they've demonstrated with these caliber cruise missiles and other capabilities, which they've periodically threatened, you know, using them against Turkey or if any if Turkey were to undertake uh, actions that they thought was threatening. So Turkey's trying to, you know, continue to balance its relations with Russia and its NATO allies, but show that it is supporting something like this new countermine initiative, saying that this is the three literal states, we're engaged in activities that are consistent with our rights and, and that we would welcome. The Turkish government, uh, the Minister of Defense, said that at some point they would welcome contributions from other NATO assets, implying that that would not happen before the end of the war. So Turkey is, is still playing this difficult balancing act that complicates sometimes uh, actions that NATO might take to more robustly defend the overall allied interests in the regions. There was a plan, as you say, Delibor, there were there's some ideas looked at, you know, that perhaps you could take some of these countermine vessels are not that large, that you could disassemble them and put them on barges and take them down the Danube. And that was looked at. But I think in the end of the day, uh, I don't know the, all the details, but that was sort of set aside. But otherwise, the straits are really the only way to get uh, vessels of that kind or, or any other naval vessels from the Eastern Mediterranean through to the Black Sea. If we could return back to the subject of anticipating what will happen in 2024, and if you'll allow me to put my pessimism in the form of a question. Look, already because of the inaction of the United States and the U.S. Congress, there's a sort of air bubble in the hose of weapons supplies to the Ukrainian army that really can't be made up in a, a timely way. So even if the spigot were turned on today, be six months before things would arrive, people would be even initially trained, so on and so forth. And we would not, I can't really see a practical way that that could influence the situation 
on the ground through the spring, you know, traditional spring and summer campaigning season. That would include the F-16 as well in that regard. Still unclear where the aircraft will come from, when, what version they'll be, what armaments they'll be equipped with, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the prospect of a Trump presidency that would be really catastrophic for the Ukrainian cause. It's just to top off this picture of gloom. We should recall that we weren't exactly thrilled with the speed with which the Biden administration was providing the weaponry needed for more decisive action in Ukraine. So when I kind of add up all those basic building blocks, it's almost the best you can hope for in 2024, is a, a stalemate where the Russians spill a ton of blood and that Ukraine lives to fight another day more effectively, maybe by the end of the year, but more likely in 2025. Again, not a very thrilling prospect if you happen to be Ukrainian, but you know, it sort of seems to me that's the prospect before us. Well, I must say I do so much here. I'm usually considered more optimistic about uh, most everything, but I, I do share your pessimism, Giselle, for all the reasons you've articulated. And you, we could add to that the stalemate that the EU has had on its 50 billion euro package that was promised this summer at a great fanfare that still hung up partly over objections from Orban, uh, the Hungarian government, but other other complications as well. And as you say, all of the a lot of that assistance too is is still in pipelines and not necessarily delivered. I have heard more encouraging notes on the question of F-16 delivery that it would happen sometime this year, but no more specificity than that, where some people are even saying at one point that it might even take longer. But just the, what I had heard from a, the senior officials who was speaking on background in December was that it was a question of just sequencing the training uh, and the availability of those aircraft and the, the Dutch, the Danes, the Norwegians, several others that do have aircraft available. Certainly, I think good news there is that all of them are quite committed to supporting that. And that certainly could provide the Ukrainians with one of the key assets that they've been missing is, is more effective air support to their own forces and, and ability to break through some of the lines. But yes, I, I think the best we can hope for is, you know, some limited progress, but perhaps also going back to what Dalibor was saying earlier, you know, some other dramatic kinds of strikes that the Ukrainians might be able to make against Russian command and control leadership positions and, and critical assets that might be quite dramatic. At the same time, of course, there's, there's the two-sided war and the Russians have the capacity to impose greater costs on Ukraine. And the question is, I guess in my mind, I've been thinking about if very much that we could say that Putin is kind of waiting to see whether or not he can cut a deal with a, a president with whom he has a great relationship, or at least that former president thought he had a great relationship with him. That would be his strategy. Don't raise too much anxiety and then and then cut a deal where his own losses are, you know, are minimized uh, because, of course, Putin has staked some of his own political future on the idea of recapturing uh, at least most of the Ukrainian territory that he currently controls and bring it under under Russian uh, sovereignty, but perhaps, you know, longer term, that just being the first bite of, of elimination of Ukraine as a nation. So I'll stop there. I want to also ask you kind of from the other side, from the U.S. side, about the Black Sea region at large. U.S. Congress has tasked the U.S. administration actually in a process going back to before the full-scale 
invasion to develop and issue a Black Sea strategy. And we've made significant progress with that. I believe a draft strategy is now with the U.S. Congress and there's been testimonies on on the topic and we should expect more results in 2024. And you, Steve, have been involved in this briefing in Congress and I believe in, in the administration too and following it closely. So can you give us an overview of what the strategy aims at? What is the role that the United States is sort of carving out for itself in the region? What are the limits to that in terms of the resources that the United States can commit to one of several theaters of instability? And of course, with, I guess, my personal question added to that is, what can we expect in this sort of difficult political situation? To what extent, this is a question that I get too um, several times, to what extent can we expect significant commitments from the United States in terms of resources too in Romania and other NATO member states um, around the Black Sea, Bulgaria, Turkey, and, and overall for maritime security when we're looking at an election year with a very uncertain that you already mentioned and discussed with a very uncertain future for NATO and European security at large. So would you talk us through where we are in terms of commitments and what do you expect from the next few months? Yes, this is perhaps a good news story in terms of leveling the, uh, the earlier pessimism that we were talking about on the, on the prospects and the conflict. This has really been a development of a strategy towards the region has come with strong bipartisan support, as you know, from Capitol Hill particularly Senators Shaheen and Romney and others who have been urging the administration to develop a more comprehensive strategy towards the Black Sea region. And as you noted, that strategy document had been presented to the Senate and the Congress in October. It includes five pillars, bilateral and multilateral engagement, regional security cooperation supported by NATO, uh, economic cooperation, democratic resilience, and energy cooperation, which is another important element of the security in the region. And we can talk a bit more on that in a minute. I think certainly the document outlines the key U.S. and allied interest and policy goals in the region. And some of the actions to, to realize that those goals are outlined, I think it could be developed further. And there really is a need for a, a more integrated and comprehensive interagency sort of effort in the United States. But also, it, and it does recognize the comments that, that Assistant Secretary O'Brien made in delivering the, his testimony did underscore the importance of working with key European allies and the EU, which has a certain capabilities, uh, particularly in the economic and infrastructure development, energy, and democratic resilience, those tools that the EU and EU member countries can bring. So encouraging that to, you know, sort of an integrated approach. But of course, it then comes down to the question of, uh, is there that commitment and level of US and European funding to support it, and also getting buy-in from a diverse range of of regional governments, both, you know, three allies, one of whom is uh, straddling the fence, and then three other countries that have uh, differing levels of willingness to commit to certain actions that would uh, both support regional cooperation and, and push back against Russian intimidation. But I do think it provides a lot of the basis, and, and it's great to see that kind of support. It's also important, though, that I think, well, the EU has made some strong statements about this, and some of the member governments, in particular, France has made quite a commitment to leading the NATO battle group that is in Romania, and has been working closely with the United States military that also contributes to that and to its other 
aspects of its presence in the region. The French have talked about a strategic partnership with Romania, and I think that it will be important to encourage the French. Uh, the Italians also are working with the Bulgarians in their battle group. That you know, Those are two countries that certainly have traditional ties in the region and capacity, both in the security realm, but also in other areas of energy development and other things that they could bring to bear in advancing a more comprehensive transatlantic strategy for the region, which is really something, frankly, that, as you know, Yulia, and you and I both have been thinking a lot about the need for that for some time. And so I think there's some positive steps in this, but it will have to be sustained. And of course, it's coming up against the fact that a number of these countries are, are feeling the strains of having provided all the support to Ukraine, uh, even that they have thus far in the war effort. To, 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 to then to think about, we're much talk, of course, about hectoring the Israelis after the war. Well, I think also the governments that are supporting Ukraine have to think a lot more seriously about the kind of the nature of the long-term commitments that they'll need to make to ensure that some of their objectives of enhancing stability and economic activity in the region, that that will require a high level of commitment. Thanks. So far, we've sort of focused on downside risks more than on sort of opportunities. Yet when you look at the Black Sea region sort of broadly, you see countries that are not just Ukraine, but, but others that are trying their best to get away from Russia's sphere of influence, whether it's Moldova, but also you know, a place like Armenia, you know, further to the south, southeast, where, I mean, the, the sort of failure of Russia to stand up by its obligations has really propelled a significant sort of turn of public opinion away from sort of pro-Russian sentiments. And, and it strikes me that both the United States and Europe should be, I mean, seizing this moment to get some of these countries far more closer to, to the sort of Western orbit and coming up with solutions, maybe short of EU membership and NATO membership, that would sort of turn these countries into our you know, reliable long-term partners and, and possibly allies in the, the years to come. Do you see that policymakers are sort of seizing the moment the way they, they ought to be, or you know, are people just too distracted? Is, is the bandwidth simply not there? for sort of Moldova and, and, and others to be on the sort of radar of policymakers at this at this time? Well, we've certainly seen signs of increased attention to the other countries in the region, particularly Moldova, you mentioned, Balibor, but, but others also. You know, the EU's Eastern Partnership Program has been, I think, overall somewhat of, of a disappointment in my eyes, but it does seem that the Commission and the Council have come together and talked about this longer-term commitment to the region and that 50 billion euro package, uh, in addition to Ukraine, I think it does include some support to the overall efforts in the region and a recognition that Moldova is quite vulnerable right now, has already faced certain kinds of intimidation from the Russians, both the Russian forces in Transnistria and other political threats. So I do think that there's a recognition that this has to be part of a broader regional strategy and it, it can't just focus on Ukraine. And then there are some opportunities. In fact, I, I noted that yesterday's Assistant Secretary O'Brien talked about the development of energy in the region, both offshore in Romania and Turkey, that, that offers some prospect for the private sector, certainly will have to be involved. But if you can provide the secure environment in which various international energy firms will be willing to work with those countries in the development of those assets, that you could also have a significant... Of course, there's going to be resistance from the Russians on that because of their desire to continue to control many of the energy flows through the region, both gas and, and oil. But on the other hand, if there is enough of a pushback against the Russian military pressure and provision of context in which some of these other economic developments can go forward, it could be cast as a win 
win because the Russians need safe transit through the Black Sea as through the Straits, given that a lot of their oil previously had come out of Novorossiysk uh, in the Black Sea, literal. So there could be some possibilities for kind of, I guess I'd hesitate to call it a win-win, but certainly maybe some a grudging move forward on restoration of normal commerce and, and expansion of commerce and, and energy development in the region. Okay, this is the most optimistic Eastern Front episode we've had in quite a while. And it, it would be absolutely a shame, particularly in wintertime, to conclude on a sunny note. Steve, we warned you at the beginning that we would ask you to take a big step backward and look at the broad trends in European security. In fact, we'd be remiss if we didn't get your views on this, given your experience and your perceptiveness as a strategist. I will lead you again, lead the witness. Again, I find myself pretty pessimistic about the opportunity that's been kind of missed since the end of the Cold War, and especially the prospects going forward for a Europe really severed in a way that none of us have experienced from American leadership, American military presence, and American commitment, broadly speaking. Please tell me I'm just being a, a contrarian or, uh, you know, that I'm just flat wrong, but please share your views about the long-term prospects for the most effective security regime that Europe has seen in 500 years surviving for another five or 10 years. Well, I'm not going to join completely in your pessimism, or, but I'm not put too much sunshine in there either, because I do share your concerns and having, as you said, and both of us have watched this dramatic development since we can go back that far in our engagement and policy discussions of the years of 1989 with the dramatic changes that we saw and the huge opportunities. You know, I, I still always say, yes, with Western support, but largely created by the people of Central and Eastern Europe themselves who had the courage to resist the communist oppression and to overthrow their masters in Moscow and bring it into the Warsaw Pact and all of the other elements of the communist regimes. But that said, we do see both democratic backsliding in some of those countries in the region. We see sort of anxiety that has gripped any meeting that I've been in in Europe. And I saw a report of the who was interviewing people at the North Atlantic Council recently saying, you know, before January, we talked about the war in Ukraine. Now, most of our NAC meetings are focused on what happens if Trump becomes president. So there is this, and, uh, you know, without, I don't want to get into a partisan note, but I do think that it is the giant question out there about if there is another Trump administration or an administration that has those same policy views, what course will European governments take? What direction will they move in if there is a growing doubt about the steadiness and the firmness of the U.S. commitment to their security and, and economic and political cooperation if the EU is again branded as a threat to America or that somehow the prospects of further security assistance or even a collective defense commitment are being brought into question. So so I do think Europe is in a sort of wait and see moment right now. And just uh, it'll be important, I think, for this administration right now to provide a kind of steady reassurance that there is to the extent that they can to broker deals and to show that the American commitment both to Europe security and to cooperation in economic and political realms is continuing on a steady pace, recognizing that it may not be as robust as all of us might hope, but that that can continue and, and to just see how things unfold. I mean, there are certainly those who argue that, you know, remember that we're predicting gloom and doom and the U.S. would withdraw from NATO at, during the first Trump administration. And, and that, that didn't happen, although certainly there's evidence that it was being contemplated or at least some dramatic shifts. And, but whether or not that happens, uh, if there is doubt, I mean, the key thing is, is trust is a big part of the nature of the transatlantic relationship. And there is doubt about the steadiness of the American commitment or the idea that it could have some positive benefits.
benefits. It could indeed trigger a greater European cooperation to provide for their own defense, but it could also trigger sort of balkanization and, and efforts in various member countries cutting deals with various neighbors and trying to you know move towards more accommodationist policies, as we've seen countries like Turkey do in that sense, because of their concerns of, or perhaps you know both objections to aspects of U.S. policy, but also concerns about being left alone with the Russians. I, I've heard Turks argue that you know one of the reasons they're in this balancing game is because they don't want to go all in against the Russians if they think that the U.S. might not be there truly to back them up. So anyway, I hope that gets at some of your question without without being too gloomy, but but recognizing that it's definitely a, a moment of great anxiety in the transatlantic relationship. I think this last note with the example of Turkey, I know you didn't mention it, but you were alluding to 2016 when Turkey has felt being left alone in, in front of the Russians. And, and this goes back to so many conversations that I think we've had on the podcast and beyond here in Washington, D.C. about these countries across beyond Turkey, Central and Eastern Europe in the context of democratic backsliding and beyond with people sometimes arguing, well, they have nowhere to go other than with the U.S. or against the U.S. But Turkey and others are showing that there are ways to go and that this can, you called it balkanization, this, this can lead to a lot of instability. I guess the safe way if we are to judge by Trump one presidency is if you are over or under 2%, right? And this is also a good way to end this conversation because all transatlantic relations now or all conversations start and end with election day in the United States. So we'll leave it at that and perhaps we can invite you again to discuss the aftermath of that when we're ready to do so, all of us. Thank you, Steve, so much for joining us. Oh, we still have 11 months of fretting ahead of us. So, <laughs> so thank you, Steve. You're very welcome. Uh, thanks. It was a pleasure. And I'll keep my hand ringing to myself for now. <laughs> well, if you need therapy, you can always find it here. <laughs> Great. I'll listen to the Eastern Front. From me, Yulia Georgia, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter or X at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for the newsletter included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.